There's a German prison camp <clears throat> where several uh, cohorts of Australian soldiers were being held captive. And there was a man whose name was Tom Moore who was in charge of the Australian barrack, which means he was responsible uh, both to the German authorities and uh, for the sake of the barrack and to the Australians for representing the interests of the Australians to the Germans. <clears throat> A man who wrote about his time there and wrote about Tom Moore, a writer, John H. King, said this about him. The authorities expect him to see their displeasure when anything is wrong with the state of the barrack or the behavior of the men. The German authorities expected that. On the other hand, the men looked to him to champion their rights and liberties, real and imagined. To carry out the job efficiently and to retain the confidence of both sides is a rare achievement, but Tom succeeded. And Tom spent most of his days during World War II going to and fro, the Germans and the Australians and the other leading figures in the camp, making sure everything was sorted out despite the uh, appalling conditions of the German war camp. And he won universal respect from the German authorities, or how we would appeal to the German authorities, and also certainly for the Australian prisoners that he represented. And this morning I want to talk to you about the greatest representative, Jesus Christ, the greatest high priest. A priest is somebody who would represent uh, uh, the people to God and who would represent God to the people. And God had instituted a priesthood to Israel over the years through Aaron, uh, but every one of those priests were imperfect people. And they were sinners. But God raised up Jesus Christ to be the perfect high priest who never sinned, who perfectly represented the people, and who perfectly represented God to the people. That's what I want to talk to you here about this morning. If you will open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1, I want you to see this morning why we need this passage. These three verses, if we're taken out of context and isolated, uh, are, are, are verses that are very familiar to all of us. You probably, probably, if you've grown up in church, you've probably heard a sermon on Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, at least one time in your life. But in order to uh, help you understand why that passage is there, I want to walk with you through some of the themes here that are in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, just a reminder, was written to uh, Jewish people who had come to Christ, professed Christ as their Messiah, the crucified and risen Messiah, but yet were tempted because of pressure, because of hardships, to go back to their old way, to go back to Judaism, to go back to temple, the temple worship, and to miss uh, what, what, what God had called them to be, the church of Jesus Christ. And so you can see some of that tension, some of the things the author is trying to help them understand when you read verses like chapter 4, verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. You go to verse 11 of that same chapter we looked at last week. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. He said in verse 1, any of you should seem to come short. Verse 11, any, any man should fall away, fall after. Chapter 4, verse 13. <clears throat> 
Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He's reminding them that God knows and sorts out and deals with hearts. Verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Let us not fall away. Let us hold fast our profession. Verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's a, there's a sense here where he's urging them to keep going, to keep pushing, to not fall away. It started back in chapter 2. You look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. The idea of drifting or falling away that he's trying to demotivate them from and to motivate them to press on in Jesus. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. He said this in chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any any of you an evil heart of unbelief, listen, in departing from the living God. He's serious. He's concerned about this situation. I showed you 4.11. But go to chapter 6 and verse 6. He's concerned about some falling away who may have given, given a verbal profession of Christ but who are now being tempted to go back to their old ways before Christ. Chapter 6, verse 6 says, it's impossible. That's what verse 4 says. Uh, verse 6 says, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Seeing they crucified in themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Notice that phrase again, fall away. Uh, It's repeated in chapter 12, verse 25. Where the author says, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth... Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from from heaven. This is like reverse repentance. This is turning from Christ back to our old ways, back to sin. You got warning uh, uh, through the writer here, these people. Chapter 13, verse 9. Be not what? Carried about, carried away with diverse and strange doctrines. This is, this is his burden. He's afraid that they might be leaving that idea of a way. So he warns them over and over. This is something negative that they needed to be warned of. And so that's why we have chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Now, what's the other end of this? If the negative is, guard your heart. Don't turn from Christ. Don't go away. The positive, then, is the opposite. Draw near. Draw near. Drawn near. And that's going to be repeated a few times too. You see it in chapter 4, verse 16, obviously. Let us therefore come, come boldly. Don't go away, come boldly. Uh, chapter 7, verse 19, please. For the law, Moses' law, made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh or draw near unto God. Um, chapter 12 again. And, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 7, sorry. Where are your fingers out here this morning? Chapter 7, verse 25. 
Wherefore, he, Christ, this high priest, is able also to save them to the uttermost that what? That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Come. Before he's saying, don't fall away. Now here he's saying, come. Go to chapter 10 and verse 1. For the law, Moses' law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices, that temple sacrifice they wanted to go back to, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the what? The comers thereunto perfect. Implying that Jesus can. Jesus can. Chapter 10, verse 19. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to what? Enter, right? Draw near, come, enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way, which He has consecrated for us through the veil that is to say His flesh. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us, what? Draw near, with a true heart, not a hardened heart, a deceitful heart of sin, a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us what? Hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for He is faithful, that promise. And let us consider one another to provoke into love and the good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So do you see the theme of Hebrews here? Don't fall away. Draw near. Come near. Come to Christ. And so the situation here of people who are from Judaism who have called themselves followers of Christ now. He says, draw near. Draw near how? Through Christ. Not in your terms. The only way to draw near to God is drawing near by relying on Christ's work alone because of His finished work. And those who are a partaker of Christ, those who are in Christ, they hold fast, they actually do draw near. They don't just say they're a Christian, uh, but don't draw near. They, 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 they don't say, I, I, I'm, I'm going to claim your promises, but I'm going to hold out uh, on here on part of that. I'm going, to, I'm going to trust in my own good works just in case I have to balance out the scales. And I'm also going to trust in Christ too. That's not how it works. Or, uh, I'm going to claim your promise, but you can't mean you paid for all of me with your blood. That's this 60-40. No. No. Those who are a partaker, they hold fast, they draw near. And how do they draw near? Well, according to Hebrews 4, 14-16, the major way that a real believer draws near to Christ is through Christ prayer through prayer prayer is so much listen to this prayer is so much a natural part of the supernatural work of regeneration of being made alive being born again that God's people are described as those who call upon the Father In Romans 8, God's people are those who cry out with their very first birth cry, Abba, Father. 
That's, this is what Christians do. It's their birth cry. This is serious stuff, in other words. This is urgent. This is real. This is what the Christian life is. The whole point of our salvation is fellowship with God. God created Adam to have fellowship with him. Adam and Eve broke that fellowship through their sin. God restores that fellowship through Jesus Christ and enables us to one day in eternity, in the, in the consummation of all things, uh, in heaven, to enjoy Christ and live with Him forever. He's all about relationship with us. He's all about a relationship. The whole point of our salvation is, 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 is fellowship with God, relationship with God. So, it, and, and so in this, in this book, he's saying if you, if you never show you have fellowship with God and it's not important for you, there should be bright flashing lights here. Because that's what it's all about. And if the case is that um, fellowship with God is important to you, and maybe you've been there, but you're stale, you're stale. And I want us to turn to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, and let the Holy Spirit peel back the incentives and motivations to walk with God from this passage. Hebrews 4, verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. You and I, who have probably grown up in church, or if you haven't, you probably have a good deal of Bible knowledge. You know about Jesus. You know the Bible teaches He was God. You know the Bible teaches He was man. But we're looking at it from this side of the cross. And... And uh, those people there had just come from that side of the cross, just, just, just passed through the cross, and now we're on this side of the cross with us. But it was all fresh and real to them. Probably some of these people may have known Jesus Christ personally while he walked on this earth. Flesh and blood we're talking about here. Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps some of them may have had lunch with him. They had seen him sweat. They had seen him shiver. They had listened to him teach. They probably knew his favorite food, which, never mind. <clears throat> Remember his laugh. You may have seen his tears. You may, they, some of them may have been at the cross and heard his groan of anguish on the cross. And they needed to know that he wasn't just a man. He is the Son of God, past through the heavens, the great high priest. The great high priest. I want to share from this passage three reasons why we need to stick with Jesus no matter what. Three reasons why we need to stick with Jesus no matter what. We looked last week on laboring for rest, and we saw that we need to fear the consequences of falling away. We saw the warning from Israel, and we saw the word to the church to learn from that warning. And then we looked at the positive side of this, to follow Christ, to pursue, to draw near, following this new life, the new covenant that was far greater than the old covenant made with Moses. To strive in obedience uh, and to submit to the sword of the Word of God. Let, it, let, let our response to the Word of God uh, be one that is, that is a response of meekness and submission to it. This morning, I want us to see that because... God is who He is. And because He has given us this great high priest, we can hold fast and we can draw near to the Father.
because of, first of all, the supremacy of our great high priest. The supremacy of our great high priest. Seeing then that we have a great high priest. That word in the Greek is the word mega. Mega. A mega high priest. A great high priest. Notice his exalted position in verse 14. Where is his station? Where is his station? Well, he says here in verse 14 that is passed into the heavens. Literally rendered, that is, that is passed through the heavens. That is passed through the heavens. Uh, he passed through the heavens. Now, in the Old Testament times, the priest once a year would have a great privilege to be able to go into the most holy place of the temple and offer a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people and himself. He would pass through the veil in the earthly temple. But Jesus Christ, at his work, passed through the heavens in the very throne room of God. What a privilege. Chapter 1 and verse 3, he's already introduced us to this theme. He says, Christ, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. The majesty passed through the heavens. Sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Chapter chapter 7, verse 26 and 27 says, For such a high priest became us, who was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. His station is through the heavens. But he is not a great high priest simply because of his station, but also because he is son. He is son. What does that mean? Well, he's called the son of God. He is perfect deity. The writer has spent chapter 1, verse 4, through chapter 2, verse 1, reminding us that Jesus is God. He is the perfect representation of God the Father. He is very God of very God. He is son. He is perfect deity. He is where eternity and time meet. He is the intersection of heaven and earth. He is the God-man. In the Gospels, the three of the disciples go up with Jesus to the top of a mountain. And it's called the Mount of Transfiguration because of what happens. God meets with them. And there are two Old Testament saints who are sitting with Jesus, uh, Moses and Elijah. And Peter is all worked up about this. He's all excited about it. And Peter says, let's build tents and just stay here. And all of a sudden, there's a voice from heaven. And Peter and the disciples are just knocked to the ground in fear by this voice that says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when they get done shaking and look up, Moses and Elijah are gone, and it's Jesus Christ alone who is there. Jesus alone. And it's such a perfect picture of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And this verse here says, this is Jesus, the Son of God, who is our great high priest. The one who the Father's voice echoes throughout those hills and mountains. This is my beloved Son. You see, there is no one who was prophesied of like Jesus. There is no one who was born like Jesus. 
of a virgin. No one worked like Jesus. No one taught like Jesus. No one died like Jesus. No one got up like Jesus. No one ascended like Jesus. And no one will come back like Jesus. This is the supremacy of our high priest. He is, he is supreme in his station. He has passed through the heavens. He is supreme as Son, the Son of God. And so what does the author say? On the basis of his supremacy, let us hold fast our profession. That word is actually the word confession. You know what a confession is? It's a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that simply means to say the same about something. But when it's used of, 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 the, of the confession that we have in Christ, that means that we say the same about Christ that God the Father says about Christ. What does God the Father say about Christ? He is the beloved Son. He is the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. He is a perfect Son of God. He is a perfect sacrifice. He is a high priest. So the author says, hold fast to what you are confessing. Hold fast. You who have agreed with God who Jesus is and what He has done for you, don't forsake Him because He is supreme. He is a mega high priest. The superiority of Jesus, the exalted position. But secondly, the sympathy of this high priest. Look in verse 15. Some of you English teachers might be a little frustrated with the way this verse is worded. Because he uses a double negative, you might notice. He says, we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. The reason there's a double negative, and the translators have translated it as literally as it is in the original language, is because a double negative is something that's very emphatic in the original language. And you know that when you have two negatives, it makes a positive. So he's saying, we do not have a priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, we have a priest who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. When we learned about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in verse 14 as his exalted position as great high priest, you might be wondering, if he is so exalted, how can he relate to me? If he's so exalted, how can he relate to me? Well, chapter 2 and verse 17 has introduced this theme already where it says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful High priest and things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the th- sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or deliver them that are tempted. You know what this verse is telling us? Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Jesus knows and Jesus cares. Jesus knows and Jesus cares about what? Well, verse 15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the what? Feelings of our infirmities. That word infirmities means weaknesses. And it can mean anything. It can mean the weakness of your own physical body. It can mean the emotional weakness that you might feel when you're overwhelmed or under pressure. But ultimately, the greatest weakness is our moral weakness, isn't it? And Jesus Christ understands He was touched with that. But notice what it says. But was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He's saying, well, there it goes. I knew it. He's a great high priest. And he knows, maybe knows what it's like in some ways, but yet he was without sin. So does he really know? Let me tell you something here. 
This Jesus, without sin, means he overcame temptation. You might say, Jesus doesn't know what it is to sin. And you're right, he doesn't know what it is to sin, but he knows what it is to be tempted by sin. You say, well, how do, what's the big deal about that? Well, let's say that um, uh, uh, we, put a, we put a weight bench down here on front here. All right, we, call, we call up one of our guys here. We'll call Tristan up. We're going to say, Tristan, here, I want you to, I want you to lift the, the, the bar here. The bar here is 45 pounds on an Olympic weight bench, right? All right, and Tristan's like, oh, that's no problem. And then we throw on two plates. It's a little harder, right? And then we throw on two more plates. And two more plates. And we get him to where he can hold it up, but he can't even bring it down. Folks, when Jesus was tempted, the temptation was even greater than what you and I faced because we let the steam off and we gave in to sin. Jesus stood there with the weight increasing and increasing from his birth till his death with the weight of sin getting heavier and heavier and the dam would not burst. And that's why Jesus is glorious. It's not a, it's not a, 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 a knock on Jesus to say He went through temptation and didn't fall to sin. It proves that He was able to hold the great weight as it got heavier and heavier, even the weight of all the sin of mankind on the cross. And it gives Him glory. It was legitimate. It was legitimate. Jesus knows our weaknesses. He sweat in our heat. He shivered in our cold. He knew hunger. He knew thirst. He knew sickness. He knew rejection by even His own family. No one suffered like Jesus did. He was rejected by even the people He grew up with in His own little village. He received temptation in every category. Nothing was foreign to Him. But the verse says, Yet, Without sin. He overcame temptation. He's glorious. And that tells us that Jesus sympathizes. And it's a real sympathy. He's our all-sufficient help in the time of, of, of temptation. His righteousness by resisting temptation, obeying God, is our power. Stories told of a little boy whose dad was in the military and was gone off on duty and Another country, and a little boy just got a picture of his dad on the wall. That little boy missed his dad badly. And one day, as well as mom was in the kitchen, mom heard the little boy just weeping. And she came in and found the little boy sitting in front of the picture, staring at the picture and saying, I just want him to come out of the frame. I just want him to come out of the frame. I want to tell you, Jesus Christ came out of the frame. He was the perfect God-man. He walked this earth. He came out of the frame. God in flesh. He knows what we experience. But He resisted and He has united you to Himself through the Gospel and He empowers you to overcome temptation as well. To hold fast and to draw near. The sympathy of Jesus is why He's a great high priest. And finally, thirdly, verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly Unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here we have the sufficiency of Jesus. Draw near to the throne of grace and do it boldly. Now in verse 14, he has said, hold fast our profession. And verse 16, he says, draw near. So he says, hold fast, but don't stay there. 
Don't stay there. Keep moving. Keep moving. Keep moving. Don't stay where you are. Keep growing in Him. And what He delivers to us in verse 16 is not the duty of prayer. This verse tells us it is a privilege of prayer. Then in other words, one of the key evidences of our confession and real faith is not just half-heartedly or as a reaction when we're in crisis, and not a burdensome thing, but the reality of the wonderful privilege of prayer. And why is this a privilege? Look what he says. Let us therefore come boldly. Where? Onto the throne of grace. This is God the Father, the Sovereign, the one seated on the throne. The one who is sovereign and holy. The one uh, on which a throne was used to judge. But it is now turned, because of our position in Christ, from a place of sovereignty and holiness and judgment, to a place to find mercy and grace. What does that mean? The throne room of God is the place of mercy and grace for the ones in Jesus. Because of Jesus. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. Jesus died the death we deserved to die. And the throne room of Jesus is where He has delivered us to. And, and, and the verse in verse 14 says, Let us, each of us, hold fast our confession. And the verse in verse 16 says, Let us, therefore, come boldly. Notice it doesn't say, Let each of us through our patron saint, each of us through our guardian angel, Each of us through our treasured relic. No, it doesn't say this. But it says on the basis of Jesus as our high priest work alone. Let us do these things and draw near. In the verse there, in verse 16, the uh, the word come is a word that means keep coming. Keep coming. Don't stop coming. Keep coming. Now, I don't remember. No, if you remember the very first time you got your ATM card, your bank card. And I got mine as a kid, a young teenager. And uh, in New York City, you have uh, uh, Chase Manhattan Bank. It's one of the larger banks, one of the larger banks in the world. And um, I could take that ATM card. And that bank might be closed in after hours, but I could take that ATM card, put it in the slot to open the door of the vestibule to go into the ATM machine when the bank was closed. There is a certain privilege here. Uh, the ATM card, even if, it, if, if, if the bank hours were over, I could go uh, beyond bank hours to get what I needed. I had access because of that bank card. I could go in and get the resources I needed for holding fast or drawing near. And that illustration breaks down very quickly here. Because the only resources I could get were in my bank account. But I want to tell you. Through Christ, He has given you the bank account card, the ATM card, to draw on inexhaustible bank account of Christ. And so His word here is to keep coming. Keep coming. Get what resources you need. Well, what do you need? In the context, you need resources for holding fast, for drawing near. Tell God the good and the bad and the ugly because of Christ. This is in a situation where we need to dress ourselves up and and clean ourselves up to look like uh, we are people who are worthy of of these resources. No, this is a situation where we march into the throne room of God and we tell the good Father who out of His throne room receives a river of grace. 
We tell Him, I do not deserve Your mercy. I do not deserve Your grace. But on the basis of one who has accomplished that for me, I am appealing to You on His work to receive Your mercy and His grace in time of need. You might be wondering, well, why does He say we need to obtain mercy? Well, folks, mercy is God holding back His wrath that our sin deserves. So if I'm going to the throne room, that must mean I'm a sinful person and I need God's mercy. And the only way that mercy is bestowed on me is through the finished work of Christ who paid it all on the cross. And I can approach the throne room of God because of the finished work of Christ and claim God's mercy that covered my sins because another paid the debt. But that's not all. He says, and find grace. And the way the, uh, the wording is in the original language is that the, the rest of that phrase to help in time of need is this idea. Find grace in the nick of time. Find well-timed grace. Well-timed grace. Folks, God's timing is always the right timing. Think about Noah. God told Noah before the flood what he needed to do. Think about the three men in the fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were already in the furnace when God provided grace. God's timing is perfect timing. And if you are weak, if you are struggling, there are two things that God will always provide to those who come boldly to the throne of grace. And they are mercy and grace. He never turns down those two things. And you can be honest in your prayers before the Lord. Lord, help me to hold fast. I'm wavering. Hold me fast. You can come boldly for those resources. Lord, help me to draw near. My life is stale. Help me to draw near. You know why you can pray like that? Because if you're in Christ, you are children of the Heavenly Father. My two-year-old pushes this button a little too much. But she can come into our room, theoretically, anytime at night, and ask for a drink of water, and we'll get it to her. And we have greater access and privilege than that with the God of Heaven. Because this is a God who doesn't slumber and sleep and doesn't roll over and mumble and groan at it. This is a perfect Heavenly Father who is overflowing with abundance and blessing. And we can pray as confident children to a loving Father and your Father will provide us a sufficient one. And the question is this. It is not because of a lack of resources. It is not because of what God has not provided. It is because of our lack of faith that we don't go to the throne room of grace. I'm going to ask you a question this morning. If we were able to look up in the throne room of grace today, 
would there be a well-worn path to the throne of grace from where you are here to there? Have you worn out a path to the Father's throne? Did you know that the Father will do uh, uh, what He desires to do because of His Son to His children? Do you know that we're not just... Uh, We're not just to pray because it's commanded, but this verse tells us we're to pray because it works. It's God's chosen way. And do you know that as you pray and and, and humble yourself and and, and see Jesus Christ as your access to the Father, that you will always get two things, mercy and grace. That mercy that precedes grace, that mercy that holds back the wrath of God in your sins because of the sacrifice. We have been tempted and we have sinned, unlike Christ, right? I need mercy. I don't deserve mercy. That's why it's mercy. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, We are in this position. We are dead in our sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together in Christ. God, who is is rich in holding back what we deserve because He has poured that out on our Son, has made us alive in Christ. And that second thing, that well-timed grace, is enabling grace. It's strengthening grace. It is sustaining grace. Do you remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? He prayed three times, Lord, take this from me. And God did not take it from me. But what did God teach him? He says, my grace is enough. It's enough. The Lord is my shepherd. It's enough. Well-timed grace. It's never too late. It's not too early. It's just in time. It's just when you need it. Noah before the flood. Shadrach in the fire. Remember Martha and Mary at Lazarus' time? That was after the fact. Lazarus had died. But God's grace was enough and it was well-timed. It's always right on time and He will provide. Where are you being tempted now? And where have you given in and said, your grace isn't sufficient for me? Sorry, it wasn't enough. I had to do it. What is your infirmity? Where are you in the deep end? And Maybe you're treading water and your nose is barely above water and you got one ounce of strength left. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help time of need. I want you to look at these words here up on the screen. Charlie Bancroft wrote this in the 1830s. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. There's open access. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's mercy. Here's grace. Behold him there, the risen land, my perfect spotless righteousness. The great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God.
put it beautifully in the words that we were talking about.